So welcome everyone. Welcome back after our one month hiatus. And um, the talks for the next, this month and the two months after will be on the seven factors of awakening. And uh, I'm excited about teaching on this because it's something that I haven't taught on before. So I'm getting, getting some new, um, some new talks with doing this monthly group. Before we go into the meditation, I thought I would um, each time just offer something that you could, if you would like to do it in the meditation relates to what we'll be talking about. So tonight, the, the one fact, I'll be talking about an overview of the seven factors and then the mindfulness factor, which is um, kind of, it's the balancing factor between the other three sets of three. And so I won't give a whole instruction on mindfulness and what it is. I'll talk about that in the talk. But one of the aspects that I really appreciate about um, mindfulness, one thing we can be mindful of is the feeling tone, which is also known as Vedana. And um, I'm sure a lot of you have worked with Vedana before, but Vedana is, is the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So this is something we can notice in our sitting that can be really interesting actually to just notice our uh, what the feeling tone is of what is arising if we're doing Vipassana and noticing what's arising or even if we're with the breath, we can, we can notice the Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And then these correspond also with the three defilements of um, desire for the pleasant, aversion to the unpleasant and delusion or boredom to the neutral. So it's one more way to really, um, to be here with what's happening in our experience. So if you're interested in trying that, I'll just put that out there. You don't have to do that. You can do whatever meditation you like, but it's always, um, it can be really interesting to, have that as part of our awareness of what is arising in us as a sense of whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So we'll go ahead now and go into a sitting for about 30 minutes, and I will ring the bell at the end. Okay, so I'll go ahead and get started. And tonight, uh, and for the next two months after this as well, I will be talking about the seven factors of awakening, also called the seven factors of enlightenment. And tonight, I'll give an overview of what these are, and also talk about the first factor. So these are seen as capacities that we already have that can grow and develop in us, either through practice, through, through life, um, and through, you know, paying attention to them and cultivating them so they can be cultivated. They're not things that we, that we don't have and that we have to go out and get. They're seen as inherent and um, things that we can encourage and grow through, uh, you know, through attention to them. So they're seen as both um, leading to awakening. So these are things that can encourage awakening to arise and um, for our practice to deepen in that direction. And they're also considered descriptors of awakening. So descriptors of the awakened state um, as it's experienced and lived in a person. One of the interesting things about them is that um, the seven factors are found in all of the Buddhist lineages. And there, there aren't that many things that are really found and talked about very similarly in all the lineages, Theravadan, you know, Zen, the Mahayana lineages, Tibetan Buddhism, Chan, they all um, have the seven factors. So it's, it's a fairly widespread understanding within Buddhism uh, 
that these are the factors that the Buddha talked about, that they're very important. And in some ways they're seen as kind of, a, um, you know, the, the crown jewels or the inner wealth of Buddhism that can happen as part of a person's deepening practice. It's said that, um, this is one of the, I love the Buddhist stories. One of the stories of the Buddha, was that he was sick one time and he asked uh, one of his disciples, one of his senior monks, Venerable Maha Kunda, to um, recite them to him. And when they were recited to him, his illness was cured. So I love that story. So there are also ways that we can relate to the world and to life, you know, in an everyday way that these are, are ways that we can approach life that create a sense of um, ultimately of equanimity and of going beyond the normal ego self and personality. So they're not just, you know, we can sort of hear a name like the seven factors of awakening and think they're very esoteric, but they actually can be very practical and lived as well. So I'd really encourage you to see them you know, in, in both ways. And these aren't just about on the cushion, but they're also about off the cushion. So the seven factors, I'll just name them, are mindfulness or sati, investigation, dhamma vichaya, effort, vinya, joy and rapture, piti, um, or I'm sorry, virya is effort. Um, Serenity or tranquility, which is fasadi, concentration, which is samadhi, and equanimity, which is upekka. So those are all seven of the factors. One of the things about the seven factors is they're also said to be the antithesis of the hindrances. So uh, there are many things in Buddhism that are sort of like the opposite of the hindrances. So this isn't the only list of things that can be seen that way, but they are um, because they're factors of awakening and the hindrances are really places where we're caught up in the, you know, delusion of the ego self and our personality patterning. They are considered to be the antithesis of the hindrances. And one of the ways we can, that can be useful is to think about feeding the seven factors, you know, so we're feeding these factors in our practice. If we can um, find ways to cultivate and, um, you know, really feeding them with our attention and starving the hindrances. So that's sometimes talked about in relation to the seven factors that we want to we want to feed these with our attention and you know, where we place our attention is what, what tends to grow in our consciousness. And I often talk in my teaching about um, the neuroscience and the, um, the thing that we now know scientifically that the, the Buddha knew through experience, but he didn't have you know, EEGs to strap to people's heads to find it out, but he, he knew it anyway, 2,600 years ago, that if we put our attention on something a lot, we're feeding it. And through neuroscience, what we know is that if we have grooves in our consciousness or synaptic pathways that we're going over and over and over and over thousands of times a day or, you know, tens of thousands of times a week or millions of times a year, that synaptic pathway is going to be thicker. They actually know this now. And if we don't pay attention to something, that pathway gets thinner over time. So it's, it's kind of like a deer trail in the forest where if it gets walked over a lot, you're going to see a trail that's, you know, bare earth. It's very easy to traverse and it's wide. Whereas if it doesn't get walked on much, it starts to fill in. And that's kind of how it is in our, um, in our actual, you know, the neuroscience of our, of our brain and nervous system that if we, if we starve a certain synaptic pathway that's say leading to a hindrance like um, aversion, you know, anger or, or fear, 
if we're going over that pathway all the time and feeding it, it's actually going to get thicker and it's going to be one that our, our attention goes to more easily. Whereas if we start that pathway, it's going to, um, it's going to get thinner. And eventually those pathways can become so weak that their our attention just doesn't really go to them very easily. So that's one of the ways we can work with these is to, is to feed the factors of awakening and then start the hindrances. And of course, that's what we're trying to um, do in our meditation. We're, we're practicing that. This is part of why we call it a practice is that we're practicing um, doing just that. So mindfulness is, um, let's see, mindfulness I'll get to in a minute, but it's always useful. It's considered a, the, a balancing factor. And sometimes people wonder like, okay, these, we got, we got a lot of lists in Buddhism with numbers in them. And I'm sure it made it a lot easier for the monastics to remember these things. Thank goodness they did so that we can have these teachings today. But we've got the seven factors of awakening. Well, how do these relate to the five, um, the five spiritual faculties, which I also give a talk on when I'm doing my two-week retreat. I give a whole talk on this. Um, and maybe I'll do a teaching on this in, in this Thursday group at some point, because I really love the five spiritual faculties also. So how do they relate? Well, these are really descriptions of um, awakening. So they're more specific to awakening, even though there is an overlap. The five spiritual faculties, like the way I I work with these, especially on long retreats, is helping people balance their meditation practice on retreat in a way that um, helps them work with um, stuck places in their practice, especially on retreat. So the five spiritual faculties, just to give you a comparison, are faith, which is not on this list, and faith really is about um, having faith in the right things and not having faith in the wrong things like our personality patterning. Um, energy, virya, which is the same as this one. Mindfulness, which is in this one. Concentration, which is in this one. And then wisdom is also in the five spiritual faculties. So really the two that are, that are different are faith and wisdom. And I won't get into what all that means, but just to say that, um, you know, there is a difference between the lists in what they are, um, what their purpose is, even though some of the factors, there's an overlap. Because, you know, these are things we want to be cultivating. So that's why we'll see them talked about in different ways and on different, um, different of the lists. So, um, it's kind of interesting with these, with the seven factors of awakening, how it relates to the hindrances. So I'd like to just talk about that specifically for a minute. Um, it's seen, I really love this. So there, it's seen as um, relating to three of the, the seven factors offset sluggishness. So if we just, if we take the hindrances and just split them into two categories, one being sluggishness, um, where we don't have enough energy, um, and, uh, and we're kind of, you know, sinking mind, I've talked about that before, where we, we may have uh, enough concentration, but the energy isn't there to keep us alert, or we're falling asleep. All of that is considered sluggishness. And then the other um, side of it is agitated. So if we take the hindrances and just, you know, get a little more streamlined with them, and look at either being sluggish and lethargic, um, versus being agitated and having too much energy. That's another way of looking at the hindrances. And I like that because it's similar to how the Tibetan Buddhists look at it. They basically, they still have the, the, uh, 
the hindrances, just like we do in Theravada Buddhism, but they really break it into these two categories, which also correspond to, in Chan Buddhism, sinking mind and rising mind. So um, the way that the seven factors then relate to that is if we're sluggish, we want to develop investigation, energy, and joy. So that really makes sense that if we're, you know, if we're finding that we're sluggish in our practice or even in life, maybe if a person has depression would be more on the sluggish side of things, or if you're just feeling sluggish in your life, developing investigation where we get more interested in things, you know, we're curious, we're wanting to explore, we're, you know, reaching out in a way that, um, would offset sluggishness. Having energy clearly would offset sluggishness. And then joy, the joy of, of you know, just being alive, being able to have experiences um, and be, be interested in things. That offsets sluggishness. So these are considered the activating factors. And it's also interesting to me that these tend to relate a little bit more to Vipassana. So in Vipassana, the investigation really is um, a characteristic of Vipassana and energy and joy. Those can be found in Samatha as well, but, um, but Vipassana definitely has investigation as one of its main characteristics. So then if we go over the agitated category, so I just talked about this, the sluggish category, we want to apply activating factors. If we're agitated, so say that we find in practice or in our life, this could look like anxiety, you know, being agitated. Um, this equates to rising mind. And here we would want to cultivate serenity, concentration, and equanimity, those three factors. So serenity, if we're agitated, yeah, serenity is going to be a nice offset to that. Just, you know, just be with something like in the Samatha practice, the breath. So the Samatha practices in my sense of things are a good offset for agitation because we're really cultivating the serenity of being with something very simple like the breath. We're cultivating concentration of really being able to place our attention on something and not have it be agitated and all over the place. And then equanimity, the equanimity of being able to be with things as they are. So these are, these are considered the calming factors. So this is where we can see that each practice, Samatha and Vipassana, leans, both of them in a certain way, encompass all of the factors. But the activating factors are a little bit more leaning on the Vipassana side and the calming factors are leaning more on the Samatha side. So we can see that these two core practices of Buddhism uh, really cover all of these seven factors of awakening and both practices have mindfulness in them, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. It's also seen that, it, that the seven factors work together um, in combination to find balance. So, so we can find a balance between desire and aversion with the seven factors. And, um, and this, as I said, can be really, um, it can seem lofty, but these are very practical in terms of how to live our life. And if we think about, you know, what we need to do in life, even something simple like driving, we can see how each of these factors would be beneficial even in something like taking a drive where, yeah, we want to be mindful of what we're doing. We don't wanna be sort of lost in thought while we're driving. And we want to be able to investigate and see what's going on and be able to be curious about, you know, what's going on with those people up there that are slamming on their brakes and so on. We want to have enough energy to be able to um, drive without 
you know, getting sleepy or losing track of what we're doing. And joy may not come with so much with driving, but even with that, if we, you know, if we're really in a good place or if we're on an open stretch of road, we could maybe lean into that joy a little bit more. And the same thing with serenity, that there can be, I've talked to people, I, I had a student once um, in the Bay Area here who drove two hours each direction to work. And he actually found that that was one of his most serene times of the day. It was a good time to process, you know, before coming home to his family. Concentration, we need if we're driving under difficult conditions or if something, you know, something road work or something a little tricky is happening. And then equanimity is considered the, the last of the seven factors. Can we be okay with what's ever happening? You know, can we learn to be with something as simple as driving where it doesn't really matter whether road conditions are good or bad. We can just be at peace with whatever it is and just know that we need to do this, this activity in order to get where we need to go. So, you know, that's just a simple example of how these can apply to, to everyday life. So mindfulness is the factor I'm gonna talk about tonight. And then for the other two nights, I'll take the, the three in a group. So the next time I'll talk about the activating factors of investigation, energy, and joy. And then the um, two months from now, I'll talk about the calming factors of serenity, concentration, and equanimity, and also do a wrap up of how they fit together. So mindfulness then as a factor is um, sati. And I know we've probably all heard a lot of talks and a lot of teachings on sati. Um, but, you know, how does it apply here in the seven factors? And this is considered the balancing factor that is really needed in all cases and um, balances the two groups so that we're not too agitated and we're not too sluggish that we can be active, but also calm at the same time. So I like to think about, I mean, this is to me, one of the um, really simple descriptions of what our consciousness, consciousness is like in awakening, or even what our physical posture is in meditating, which to me is part of why our posture is important is that we want to be alert. So that's the active part, but also relaxed. And if our posture is alert and relaxed, it really supports our meditation a lot more. And, and that is a posture we can take in life where we're alert and we're present and engaged, but we're relaxed. We're not sort of striving in a way that um, there's an over-efforting, but we're also not checked out. So this is really mindfulness brings in an awareness that um, lets us have a balance of those two. So it's considered a balancing factor. Being mindful really means being aware of either what we're doing in the moment if we're in our daily life or if we're on the cushion of our object of meditation. And it can also, Sati can also refer to being aware of fundamental reality. I mean, at a level, at an awakened level, it's really being aware of the three characteristics of existence, which are um, dukkha, anicca, and anatta. So the unsatisfactoriness of the human experience and the fact that, you know, really the first noble truth is part of the human experience. Um, the knowledge that everything is impermanent, and then the knowledge of um, there not being a permanent self. So these are the different levels that we can be mindful of. Uh, but it basically means being aware of our object of meditation. So if we're doing a, and this means any practice, not just Vipassana. So if we're doing Vipassana, obviously, we want to be aware of the phenomena that are arising in our experience in choices awareness. If we're doing samatha, we'd be aware of the breath or if heart practices, which are also in the samatha category, being aware of our object, whether that's metta, 
loving kindness or compassion or equanimity. Um, so that's really what we're pointing to with mindfulness. When mindfulness is present, there's an ability to um, really settle into awareness. So this is mindfulness more at the level of like, how does it look in the awakened state? There's a sense of being mindful of what's arising without being attached to the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant and without becoming bored and needing entertainment when it's neutral. So there's a way of really, um, of just consistently being there, being present and being established in a sense of presence without attachment. And that's really what mindfulness looks like when it's relating to um, a description of the awakened state. I mean, there's all the other factors of awakening too, but that's what the mindfulness factor really looks like. So, um, it means, you know, being here, being present, being aware of phenomena that are arising in our awareness with minimal reactivity. So, you know, one way to see that we're caught up in something is when there is reactivity. So when we're mindful, like on the cushion, we're, if we're being mindful, we know when we've lost our object. That's a really good litmus test. We know that, you know, part of why we call it a practice is that we know we're going to not be mindful all the time, that we're going to lose awareness and that we've lost track of whatever our meditation object is. And we're, we're just lost in thought and identified with the phenomena that are arising in our awareness. That's going to happen. Mindfulness is what brings us back to knowing that rather than being completely lost we go, oh yeah, I went off, like if we're doing Samatha, I went off the breath, I'm gonna come back. Or if we're doing Vipassana, oh yeah, I you know, noticed I was thinking and I was noting that I was in planning, but now I got completely identified with what I was planning and I, I forgot that I was noticing the planning. So you know, this is where we can notice that we become completely identified with the contents of our experience and we can come back to being mindful of it and being present. So that's really, I think, knowing when we're caught up or when we're triggered. So off the cushion, being present for what's happening instead of either in the past or in the future. You know, it's fine to think about the past and the future. It's not that we should never be doing that. But if we're just lost in thought in that way that we're not actually present to what's happening, if we need to sit and think or talk about the future, the past, that's, that's fine. But do we know that instead of just being sort of ruminating in a loop about something? That's really what mindfulness brings is to know when we're caught up or when we're actually triggered. So, um, you know, when we're triggered, when we're caught up in emotional reactivity, either within ourselves or with another person, mindfulness is the faculty that, that lets us go, oh, I'm triggered. You know, even just seeing the fact that we're triggered gives us some space from being triggered so that we're not completely identified with it. Well, we're completely identified, then we've lost mindfulness, basically. So um, I really like Gil Fronstel gives some talks on the, the seven um, factors of awakening. And he has one word for each factor. So I'm going to share those with you as we go through this, because I think it's really brilliant what he's done. I just love Gil. He's been one of my teachers for since I was in my 20s. Um, but the word he uses for this factor is here. Here. So that's really what we're talking about is mindfulness is being here with whatever it is that we are being with off the cushion. That means being with whatever we're doing, being, you know, if we're talking to somebody, we're here, we're with the person. We're not thinking about 
the thing we're doing in an hour. We're actually attending to that person. We're not looking at our cell phone while they're talking, you know, we're with the person. Or if we're enjoying, you know, a beautiful sunset, we can actually be there with it and enjoy it. Or if we're on the cushion meditating, whatever meditation practice we're doing, we are with the object of that practice. If that's Vipassana, then it could be the, the four foundations of mindfulness, you know, the body, the feeling tone, Vedana, which we just went through um, when I was giving that pointer at the beginning of the meditation with the states of mind and observing our experience, the content of our experience, or with our inner process of what's actually going on in our consciousness. So that's a way to be present. If we're doing Vipassana, if we're doing Samatha, then we're present with the, the one object of awareness that is the object of the Samatha meditation. Dhanapanasati, that would be the breath. With the heart practices of the Brahma Viharas, that could be loving kindness, joy, equanimity, compassion. And actually with the Brahma Viharas, we're with the thing that the person we're meditating on is embodying. So for example, with metta, where our actual object is the person's goodness. So when I say the object of meditation, really the mindfulness on the cushion is being aware of whatever that object is and realizing it when we have gone, when we've strayed from that and coming back. So we can be mindful doing any kind of meditation practice if we're doing walking meditation, depending on what kind of walking meditation we're doing, we would be aware like in Vipassana of the movement of the walking, that you know, the movement of the body, the, the feet, the sensations in the, in the feet and legs, the, the lifting, the moving, the placing of the feet. Um, so this is really what we mean by mindfulness. And this word here really, you know, you can kind of get a feel for that. I'm just, I'm here. I'm here in the present moment with what is happening. And that is this first factor of awakening of sati, mindfulness. So I'll stop there and see if there are any, um, any questions or comments about any of this. I have a question. Um, you mentioned, I, I never really related to agitation and anxiety. I never connected those. Mm -hmm. um, and you were saying the breath work is the best, one of the best ways to work with that. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if we look at um, agitation, which would be where we're thinking a lot, you know, where we're sort of um, lost in thought and, and the mind is very busy. It can be called rising mind. Um, the factors that offset that according to the seven factors of awakening are serenity concentration and equanimity. So the category, if we look at Samatha and Vipassana as two of the main practices that the Buddha taught, the Samatha practice is in particular, um, the mindfulness of breathing, the Anapanasati is a practice that's really, I mean, the word Samatha means concentration and serenity. So, you know, in itself, the actual word of the practice means two of the three factors that are supposed to offset agitation. And, you know, equanimity is something that those can lead to. So, um, yeah, those, those practices are this, the Samatha practice is really um, designed for us to have a very simple object that is, and there's 40 objects in the Samatha portion of the Buddhist path. So it's not like the breath is the only one, but it's just the one that he recommended the most often. It's considered the easiest and most accessible. You know, the breath in itself can be very calming. I mean, we know through even um, medical practices, and I've read an art article about Navy SEALs using breathing to control their anxiety when they're oh. out on missions. 
Um, and so the breath can be very calming and just as an object, you know, in itself. But then when we have one object of meditation that we're just coming over, coming to over and over, there's a way that it's not as active in our consciousness. Vipassana is a more active practice and that's good too. I mean, you know, Vipassana is an awesome practice. So I'm not saying one is better than the other, but, um, uh, but coming back to one object that's very simple that really you're just returning over and over to that one object, it's a lot more still. There's more stillness in that practice, which tends to lead to more, you know, stillness often goes with serenity. And it also is designed to bring the mind stream together and to unify the mind in concentration. So the Samatha practices can go to, there are three stages of concentration in the Buddhist path that have, you know, been talked about in, in Buddhism. And the Samatha practice can go to the third level, whereas Vipassana, because it is more active and we're investigating our experience, it can't go to that third level. So there's, you know, there's just more possibility of deepening concentration with the Samatha. So, you know, it's, I mean, both practices are beneficial for uh, anxiety and depression. So I don't mean to say that they, you know, Vipassana is, there's many, many neuroscience studies showing that it's beneficial for both of those. But if you're going to say, you know, does one practice kind of cultivate more of the factors of awakening? Is it designed to do that more than the other? That's how it would end up dividing up. Does that thank make you. sense? Sure. Yes, thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question. Tina? So I, think I missed this, but what um, could you sort of go over again the reason or the reasons that the Buddha has these two specific lists of seven factors and, you know, awakening and then the five, um, you know, spiritual factors? Spiritual faculties. Faculties, yeah. 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 Well, the, the you know, there's overlap, obviously. Yeah. And even if we look at the... Um, if we look at the Eightfold Path, you can see some duplication there, you know, wise effort, wise concentration, things like that. So, um, so clearly these are things that he saw being important in a lot of different contexts. The seven factors of awakening are really about um, specifically about awakening and enlightenment and describing factors that, you know, there's two ways they're understood. Um, in the Samyutta Nikaya, it talks more about how these are the factors that lead to enlightenment. So like cultivate these as a way to, you know, move towards awakening. And then in the um, Abhidhamma and the Pali commentaries, they're described, they're talked about more as descriptors of enlightenment. So this is like once awakening happens, even like at the first stage of awakening, um, these factors are, are more present. You know, these are factors that are present and also they are offsetting the hindrances in such a way that um, they kind of come to replace, you want to think about they're replacing the hindrances in our consciousness. Mm. So, uh, you know, instead of being caught up in desire and aversion and delusion and restlessness and remorse and doubt, we would have mindfulness and investigation and effort and joy and serenity and concentration and equanimity. So there, it's like, you could think of it as, as it's describing what, what replaces those. The seven spiritual, or the five spiritual faculties, the way that I um, understand those more and also use them more like when I'm teaching, especially on retreats, is like, these are things that you can help you um, 
balance out your practice as you're working with um, getting caught in the hindrances. So like if you're really, really caught in the hindrances, um, you might need some faith. You might need to at some point just go, you know what, I need to trust what the Buddha said. I Maybe I need to cultivate some devotion to, um, to the Buddha and to all the lineage of people who pass these teachings down to 2,600 years. Some faith might help you stay with it. But faith isn't really a descriptor of awakening. You know, with awakening, you don't need faith. You know, you, you're already, you've experienced these things enough that faith is no longer necessary. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying none of the five spiritual faculties are necessary, but in that particular example, you know, at that point, faith is not maybe, you know, you're not struggling with the hindrances as much. So um, uh, energy, mindfulness, and concentration are three of them. So there's an overlap there. And then wisdom, I mean, of course, wisdom's always necessary. But one way of looking at wisdom is that um, as, a, as a faculty is that part, part of wisdom is knowing um, what to how to be practicing and what to be putting our faith in, for example. Like, you know, we may have to have faith in the teachings because we haven't experienced all the things the Buddha's talking about. Maybe we've experienced some of them though. And then that can turn into wisdom. So faith in the five spiritual faculties, wisdom and faith balance each other. So there's a way where we have to take a lot on faith that we haven't experienced and trust the Buddha and our teachers. But once we've experienced that, like on my um, two week retreats, people, most everybody gets to the point where they are experiencing access concentration. And um, once they've experienced something like PT, which is joy and rapture, they know that for themselves they don't need faith anymore so it starts turning into wisdom mm. wisdom about their own practice wisdom about the teachings that they can speak from their own experience about it so that's where the the five spiritual faculties to me are more like what do i do in my practice when i'm struggling with hindrances and other things mm. the the seven factors of awakening also can be used that way but they're um they're more descriptors of awakening and things we cultivate on the road to awakening. That's that great. Makes sense. Yeah. There's That's some nice. overlap. It's not like they're completely different. There's definitely an overlap of circles there, but I think the way the Buddha was talking about them, they're, they're used a little differently. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the question though. And then, um, Lynn was asking about the hindrances. Thank you, Terry. Yes. Greed or desire, aversion. And aversion includes anger, hatred, and fear. A lot of times people think of aversion and don't, it's like, where does fear fit in? Well, fear, aversion is, is like, we, we want to get away from what's happening. So we could get a, push things away through fear which is aggressive, hatred, which is more of a cutting off. Hatred is cold, fear is hot. So if you think about it like that, like anger is, is like red, you know, red rage. Hatred is more like cold, it's icy. And fear is, you know, withdrawing. It's moving away from the thing that we don't want. So that's a version, sloth and torpor, is um, sleepiness. And then when we get to the three defilements, that becomes delusion where we're falling asleep on ourselves. And that's really considered the core place where we turn away from our deeper nature is through delusion, believing that we are the ego self and that the body and physical reality is ultimate. And then um, restlessness and remorse is the fourth of the hindrances. And 
doubt is the fifth doubt being um, doubt in um, the, the teachings. So doubt in the teachings of, of Buddhism, doubt in the teacher, that the teacher doesn't really know what they're talking about or doing, and then doubt in ourselves. And for most people, I mean, all three of these can come up, but for a lot of people, doubt in themselves is the one that comes up the most. I mean, that's the one I hear the most about from people. And um, it's that feeling that, you know, other people may be getting this, but I'm not, you know, or, or like if you're on a retreat, you look around. It's so funny because, you know, I'm hearing all everyone coming in doing interviews with me and, and you know, one person can come up and, in and say, you know, that person over just to my right, they are like, they're a statue. They never move. They must be so deep in their practice. And, you know, I'm so inspired by them. And then that person comes in and says, oh, I'm just so restless, you know, but that, that person back over there behind me, they, they just, I never hear anything from them, you know? And so we all think that other people oftentimes will think they're just doing so much better than we are. And, and so doubt in ourselves can be, uh, can be a big factor. But with all of these noticing, when we notice the hindrances, the defilements, we're not completely identified with it. We got a little bit of space, you know, before that, like if we have doubt and we're just telling ourselves, oh, I'm no good at this. I'm a terrible meditator in this. We're completely identified with that thought. If we can just say, oh, that's doubt. Now there's a little bit of space there. So that's really the beauty of the, um, the Buddhist teachings on the hindrances and defilements is that it's, it's ingenious. Um, Lynn, I saw you had your hand up. Sorry, I didn't mean to um, to not respond. I just put it in the chat. Yeah, sloth I and just torpor. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so sloth and torpor. I love sloth and torpor because it's so quaint and old-fashioned, you know. I mean, do, do any of us go around and saying, I'm feeling a little sloth and torpor today, you know. But it's it's uh, it's descriptive and you can know what it's, it, what, once you know what it means, it does kind of feel like that when it's happening. It's really like a sleepiness. Like, have you ever seen a sloth? The animal, the sloth, I mean, it takes it like five minutes to go one inch on a branch. They're really fun to watch, actually. Um, but sloth, it's being just, ah, oh, I just can't, you know, just can't stay awake here. And torpor, you know, just feeling heavy, leaden, you know, really um, lethargic. Uh, if you're falling asleep in your meditation a lot, that is sloth and torpor. And nowadays, what I find is that a lot of people are chronically sleep deprived. It's really true. A lot of people just are chronically sleep deprived. So if you if that's you, one, try to get some sleep, you know, try to be well rested, because it's really important for your health and for your practice. And two, um, if sloth and torpor is happening in your practice a lot, even when you're rested. Like when I have retreats, I tell people, if you are sleepy, when you arrive here, you may be chronically sleep deprived, take a nap, go and miss one of the sittings and go take a nap and be rested. But if on day three, you're rested, and you're still falling asleep, that's a defilement. And you need to start working with it as a core personality pattern that of falling asleep on oneself. So the defilements really are, these are the core um, desire, aversion, delusion are the core three that are really like more, they're deeper personality patterns. We all have all three, but we, you know, most of us lean a little more towards one or two, even though we have all three. Um, and it's a defense mechanism of falling asleep on ourselves. When things, when things come up, we don't want to be with, when it's hard, when also when things are neutral, it's a defense against neutral. So I talked about Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant goes with desire. So can we be with pleasant without getting overly attached to it? 
Can we be with unpleasant without needing it to go away, knowing that all things arise and pass and eventually it will go away on its own? But neutral, I mean, we're in a society right now, uh, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, if people were waiting in line at a grocery store, they just stood there or they talked to their neighbor. They didn't pull out their cell phone 12 times. We're constantly having to entertain ourselves. So we're in an era where you can't even pump gas anymore without entertainment at the gas pump, you know? So I've, I've been emphasizing neutral a lot more because even those of us who aren't really entertainment junkies, we've gotten so conditioned to it that we, the tolerance for neutral has gone way down. So um, a lot of times delusion is we start falling asleep if things are neutral. We can't be with the fact that things are just, you know, nothing's happening and I'm just sitting here being with my breath. What's so bad about that? Why do I need entertainment? You know, why isn't that enough to just be able to sit here and not have to do anything and just relax? You know? So, um, so those are the three core defilements. Greed. Yeah. So greed, um, greed is, you know, often how it's phrased. I usually use desire because it's a little bit more less judgmental term, but, you know, technically it's greed, hatred, and delusion are, are the way it's talked about in the text. Um, but aversion really includes hatred, anger, and fear. Um, desire is, now there's, sometimes it's talked about a sense desire, um, but to me, the way to look at desire, to understand desire, is that it's when we get really attached to something or when we keep looping in our thoughts, like, if I just get that thing, my life's going to be, all my problems will be solved, you know, where we think that when we get that thing, then that's when I can be happy. And then we might get it and we might be happy for a short time. But when we get things, at some point, it wears off. So getting from the outside, it may be temporarily satisfying, but ultimately it's not a, a permanent solution. So this is where wholesome desire in the Buddhist path is desire for liberation, for um, being freed in our consciousness, because that is permanent. If we don't have the hindrances, we can be with whatever's there and we're okay. We have equanimity. So that's really where wholesome desire is encouraged on the Buddhist, Buddhist path. But, you know, we have to kind of differentiate there. So I see we're actually over time, but so I'll stop here. But um, thank you all for your attention and for being here. And um, I will look forward to next time getting into three more of the seven factors of awakening. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.